And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. We have a really special guest for us here today. Dr. John Butler is going to be jumping in and sharing some of his own vantage points um, on American historiography, specifically Adventist historiography. Um, and we just want to say thank you, Dr. Butler, for coming in here and joining us on the podcast. I'm very happy to do it. Yeah, well, we're just uh, delighted to have you and uh, wanted to begin kind of at the beginning. And, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got started, how you got interested in in Adventist history and American religious history. Well, um, it probably goes back to the seminary. Uh, I was a theology major in college, but not a history major. Um, And uh, but I got back to the seminary. I took a, a seminar on American religion from Roy Branson. Uh, He was a new uh, uh, faculty member there from Harvard, and he taught ethics. And I was very uh, interested in ethics because he he was such a charismatic uh, guy. But I took this class in American religion, and we read a bunch of American religion books, Uh, you know, Sidney Mead and Perry Miller and and, uh, Whitney Cross and Timothy Smith and all these, you know, we had to read a book a week and write about it. And uh, that that had a huge impact on me. And I got to know Martin Marty by doing that. And he was at Chicago and he'd been a student of Sidney Meads. But uh, anyway, that was uh, I don't think I would have taken medieval history for a career or I wouldn't have taken European history. I was interested in in American religion because it provided this context for Seventh-day Adventism. So it was sort of a, a way of exploring my own tradition from from the outside, I guess you'd say. Nice. Well, then what kind of looking at your own Adventist tradition then, what was your background um, that you kind of came into this with? You said you, you went to seminary, but what, what kind of background did you have in this that would even, you know, spurred you in this study in the first place? Um, well, I grew up in Southern California and... Um, my my um, father was a non-Adventist, and my mother was an Adventist, and uh, and uh, so, but we uh, all the kids went to Adventist schools, and my my dad was happy about that. He uh, thought that was a good thing for us. But uh, I, I worked up through um, you know uh, Glendale Academy. Uh, I went. I got there as a as a middle school student, and um, and then went to La Sierra, and that was in the era when uh, you know Fritz Guy was there, and and uh, Royal Sage and um, Walter Specht and people like that, and and I was a theology major at La Sierra. A little bit, a little bit conflicted about it. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a man of the cloth, you know, but I did feel a sort of uh, a call, I guess you'd say, to do that. And uh, then I went to the seminary, but I think I became more uh, attracted to the seminary professors than I had been to many ministers. You know, I liked the life they lived. And so, um, and they challenged me and interested me and and so it was there. I said, well, you know, I was on call to the Southern California Conference. But I said, eh, you know, maybe I'll go get a Ph.D. now. You don't have any kids and we're got the time. And and then I had intended to go back to a pastorate. But um, they I, I'm not sure they wanted me <laughs> after I'd been to Chicago and <laughs> Union did want me. So that's the <laughs> you, way it went. You, you, you lost your collar, but you gained uh, the, the ivory tower, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tell us about your early teaching experience a little bit. You know, here you are transitioning from grad school and now you're teaching Adventist young people about what were you teaching and tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, at Union, uh, I was teaching in the religion department, which was a very interesting department in those days, in my view. Uh, Ward Hill was kind of the one I was closest to. 
these are people that are before your time, I think. But uh, John Baldwin was there as kind of a new faculty. I mean, he went on to theology at the seminary. Um, and there were several. Uh, Floyd Brzee was the chair, and he ended up in the ministry department. Uh, and um, so it was a it was a great place to be. And I had been trained in church history, but they put me in the religion department. And I was teaching, I was teaching some Bible, but then also church history. And uh, I was telling uh, Greg that I, uh, Doug Morgan was my, <laughs> he, he showed up in my classes as a freshman. And I was, I was teaching upper division classes, but he wanted to take my classes. So he, he took all my classes in his first two years there, and uh, he he was really a, a, an interesting person to get to know. And then he went on to Chicago and was a student of Marty's and did his book on Adventism and the American Republic. Uh, and, uh, you know, so he was kind of, uh, it was kind of nice to be tag teaming with him, you know, through Chicago. Um so, yeah, I taught two years at Union, and then I, I wouldn't say I wanted to leave at all, but but it was sort of pulled toward La Sierra. My family was out in California, and we were sort of between our two families, and um, and they sort of twisted my arm, and, and um, I went. There were many things I missed about living in Lincoln, Nebraska. I really enjoyed that and enjoyed the college. You, you know, you're sort of a big fish in a small pond at Union, in a way. and But also, Lincoln is such a great city to live in. You know, it's a capital city. And the, and the college is integrated into the community. It isn't some outlier, some marginal place. It's, you know, Seventh-day Adventists are part of the mix out there. And I like that. Um, but then I went out to La Sierra, and I was there for for basically 10 years at La Sierra. So I want to, before we move on to some other things, you know, you're at Chicago, Martin Marty. You know, I've always heard from several people, I think the most recently Lisa Diller at Southern, who also went to Chicago. You know, he's yeah. had a very friendly uh, interactions with Adventists. So what what was that like? And what did you work on for your dissertation? Yeah, Marty um, is a... Uh, a great person. I mean, he he pays attention to students. He is a very busy person. And, uh, you know, he basically wrote a book every year and edited a book every year. Um, he would take a trip to Europe with his family and come back and he was unpacked and everything was put away in 10 minutes. This is the kind of guy he was. If you went in to ask for a letter of recommendation, he said, keep talking. And he would turn to his typewriter. In those days, it was a typewriter. He would dash out the letter, turn back toward you and hand it to you in the few minutes, you know, in the middle of the interview. I mean, he, he just, he did everything now and he got a great deal done. But he also... I probably needed faculty that I could just hang out with. And I, I found that in Gerald Brower, uh, who had been Dean when I got there, but then uh, retired as Dean and went back in the classroom. And he, I hung out with him more. Marty was, you, you would, you would do <laughs> they did 10 minute blocks for appointments. So you'd say, I have a 10 minute appointment with Marty, but I would accumulate things. And so it was 20 minutes. I said, okay, I, I really need to talk to him for 20 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, we were done. I mean, he had handled everything and there was nothing left, you know, but I really needed probably to sort of shoot the bull a little more. Um, so he was, I wouldn't say he was the greatest fit for me in a lot of ways, but he certainly, it wasn't his fault. I mean, he was, just, he was very attentive. And uh, I learned a lot from him. And and in some ways, I've learned a lot from him since, too. I mean, reading his thing and thinking about what he said, you know. I, when I uh, 
first met him, he said, well, I don't think you should do anything on the Seventh-day Adventists. I think you should stay away from that. Um, he said, you'll get in trouble if you write about the Seventh-day Adventists. And you want a career that is, you don't want a parochial career. You want to be somebody that is taken seriously beyond Seventh-day Adventism. So I did a, I did, well, I studied millennialism all the way through. I was taking courses in early church, medieval, modern, always thinking about millennialism. But um, my dissertation was a little bit of a departure from what it was on. It was on heaven and hell in American revivalism, 1870, 1920. So I was dealing with the Dwight Moody's and the Billy Sundays and all that. And I don't think, I don't think my passion was in that dissertation. I don't think it was by any means the best writing I did. Um, And late in my Chicago years, I was asked to do a paper to be part of a conference out at Loma Linda. And I did, I wrote Adventism in the American Experience, the the essay that's in, uh, and I, uh, in uh, the rise of Adventism and that, that I was still at Chicago then and they read it. I mean, Marty and, uh, you know, they read it and critiqued it and, uh, and Brower read it. And um, in some ways, I think it, it helped me with them. I mean, they said, oh yeah, they weren't worried about me doing SDA topics. Maxwell had gone through there, Mervyn Maxwell, and he had uh, sort of alienated himself from a lot of Chicago professors, not so much for what he did at Chicago. He was very, a very credible and high-performing student. It's what he did after he left there. They felt embarrassed by some of the things he did that were so sort of in-house and parochial and uh, and outside his field, he wasn't. He was yeah. trained in early church, and so so. You're talking about Mervyn Maxwell, just for yeah, our listeners, yeah. yeah, right. And when I was in my doctoral exams, his name came up, and one of the people on the exam who didn't know me very well said, "Do we have another Mervyn Maxwell on our hands here?" I don't know if you need to bleep <laughs> this out, but anyway, he. Um, they said no, no. I mean, the other professors. Uh, Marty and so I came to my rescue and said, no, no, he's not, he's not like that. But um, it was a good experience for me. It, it might have been unnecessary to keep me away from the SDA. I mean, I was working in, I was thinking about the SDAs and working in, uh, in ways on millennialism and so on that were helping me understand SDA history. But, um, but anyway, it, it worked out well. So that's an interesting, you're kind of a bridging the gap there between you know, definitely a more secular historian perspective and then the parochial one, as you said. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, how, how did uh, you figure out how to make those two worlds kind of work together? Because um, like you said, I know that some, some impressions uh, can leave a bad taste on one side. And uh, even, even in my own experience, you know, I've gone to a school that's not prim- primarily Adventist for my own doctoral work. And it's been it's been interesting to kind of be that that bridging uh, element between where you're dealing with other past experiences with Adventists. Um, you're the newest one. How do you overcome what what was the way that you found was the best uh, to kind of give give some credibility back to uh, the denomination's scholarship in general? Yeah, I think from that seminar I took uh, at the seminary from Branson. I was interested in the context of Seventh-day Adventism, uh, you know, the milieu and, you know, how how it influenced the church or how the church mm. resisted it. You know, it both happened. You know, it's kind of a contradiction. SDAs are very like their environment in some way, and they take distinctive paths in other ways. So that obsessed me. Uh, you know, I just was very, very interested. In so I wouldn't have to have been, but that's what, that's what lit my fire. And so um, I come at 70 Adventism from the outside. I don't do that sort of granular interior work. I rely on other people who do that uh, 
to tell the story from the inside out. I tell it from the outside in. And, um, and um, yeah, it, it uh, certainly Chicago helped there. I mean, I was, there were Seventh-day Adventists there and the Divinity School, Rick, Rick Rice was there, but he was in another, another department. So you, you feel in a certain way isolated, you know, you're, you're an SDA. They know who SDAs are. They were quite, pleased with SDAs there. I mean, um, somebody said, one of the people in the medieval department said, are all Seventh-day Adventists smart? You know, because I mean, you know, <laughs> they were used to these people coming through that were high-performing people. And and uh, we sort of chuckled about it because we knew this wasn't necessarily a representative sample, <laughs> you know, of every, of, you know, the Allegheny Conference or something. But um, but still, um, it, the, the reputation was good. You didn't have to sort of scratch and claw. Um, and at Chicago, they celebrated your distinctiveness. Uh, uh, the, uh, Langdon Gilkey, the theologian told Fritz Guy when he arrived, we don't make, want to make a non-Adventist out of you. We want you to be an Adventist and go back to Adventism with what you've learned here. Um, so, you know, that makes you feel good. It made Fritz feel good because he he had no intention of, of using Chicago as an exit ramp, you know. Um, so they did celebrate. I mean, they're, they're liberals, you know, so they celebrate being tolerant, you know, and, and having all <laughs> kinds of. So I would show up at Marty's house for a party and there was liquor there and sherry in the bowl and he would come over and very ceremoniously drop a a uh, a mountain dew in front of me <laughs> with a cup of ice and you know and i would little, little little did he know though the caffeine content i mean that's still an issue come on <laughs> i know I, I didn't want to say anything you know uh, but uh but yeah i I was a little embarrassed by it almost to be singled out. Mm -hmm. I would rather just have slinked around pretending I was drinking or something. But um, (laughs) yeah, he, he, um, but that was his way, his gesture saying, look, uh, you know, you don't have to carouse here. Yeah. So John, you mentioned earlier about uh, this conference on uh, that leads to the book, the rise of Adventism. You're writing a chapter that chapter becomes quite significant and influential in Adventist historiography. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and some of the other early Adventist historians that you begin to rub shoulders with. I'm, I'm thinking now of like Gary Land and Run Numbers. How did, how did you bump into these guys? I wrote this essay. It was um, a conference that Ron Numbers and Vern Carner had sort of co-chaired and co-hosted and um so it was on the rise of adverse and they had all non-stas coming out for this thing uh winthrop hudson was one of them i'm i'd have to go back and look at names now but um so they wanted timothy smith i think it was they wanted to deal with the context of the church but then they wanted an essay on adventism too specifically on adventism and so I was at Chicago then uh, and route to Union. And so they they asked me to do it. And I don't think I knew Ron numbers a whole lot by then. I mean, I got to know him uh, through this. And um, the uh, I can't I was invited out to like they had a lecture going on through the whole year. So people would come out every month or so. And uh, so I did, I did mine uh, toward the end, and uh, um, and this was, and then <laughs> Ed Gauss' numbers was a little put off by this because Carner was a student of Ed Gauss, who was a big name in American religion at that time and teaching at UCR, and so uh, on his own, Carner goes to. Ed Gaston said, would you edit this book? Because he wanted to get it published, through, which it was published through Harper and Royce. He said, would you edit this book? And uh, 
Gossage said, sure, you know, you got all those names in there. Well, I'll do that. And so he came back and told Numbers and Numbers who hadn't published anything yet. Right. He just he was at Loma Linda. Uh, he'd been at Andrews for a year and I was at Loma Linda. And he wanted to publish it. You know, he had in mind, you know, that this was going to be his first. It's going to be an edited book that he published. And but here Carner had sort of out <laughs> flanked him. And so he ended up. Uh, but I mean, he went on and was writing while he was at Loma Linda. And that's when he <laughs> that's when he wrote uh, Prophets of Health there, of course. And and I knew him pretty well by then. And so he would tell me. He would regale me with all that he was learning about Ellen White while he was doing Prophet as Felt. But we we see this edgy side of numbers in those days. And he was, uh, he, of course, ended up with this bombshell of a book that had everybody up in arms. But he was also, there was this other side to him. Uh, he, he was really the founding father of Adventist heritage. Uh, he wanted a, he wanted a journal that, that lay Adventists could enjoy and not, he didn't want it to be uh, preachy. He wanted it to be history, but kind of like an American heritage only for Adventism. And, um, and Gary Land came on board. So Ron, Gary Land and I were the first mm. three editors of it. Um, now when, when Prophet's Health came out, everybody sort of felt like numbers couldn't be an editor anymore of it because he was just uh, such a pariah. I would, <laughs> I would say that if you were here, he was a little, I think hurt by that because he had, um, it was his idea. It was his brainchild. And uh, he wanted people sticking up for him more than they, they did. But it, I think realistically, it was sort of impossible to keep him, keep him on there. Now he also, was involved with the Adventism in America. That series, it was supposed to be a, a, a series. And that was again, well, he, again, he had to leave that project and he, uh, because of, uh, because of the prophet's health, but Gary Land took that one over. So we were all kind of working together. We were geographically uh, at a distance uh, a bit in that period. But uh, we were doing things together and writing uh, together and, and so on. Uh, so, you know, uh, Gary, I had known when I was a seminary student. He was a brand new, uh, brand new professor at the seminary and was a unique figure because he never went to movies, but he read fiction. <laughs> so... He was he was deeply versed in fiction, but he didn't believe he should go to the movies. As he was interesting, uh, interesting, uh, that wouldn't uh, I doubt that remained. But I mean, when he got there, he was that way. <laughs> and uh, I became quite close to him in that period, and went down to Chicago. Would come up and visit him and see him, and and uh, but these guys were lifelong friends. I mean, Gar uh, Ron. Uh, was a was a lifelong friend. I think of Ron and I as sort of different voices, uh, different styles, but he's very encouraging of what I do. He's very supportive of what I do, and uh, and I've always been very supportive of him. I mean, I think he he kind of put the SDAs on the map historiographically in many ways. Uh, contemporary Seventh-day Adventist and people read him. They know him. Marty loved mm -hmm. him. I mean, Marty was probably closer to numbers than he was to me. I mean, he did projects with him and, uh, you know, uh, so the, the church I think has owes him for that and can be, you know, he has his little prickly side to him, but uh, he's always been interested in real history, not expose, not exit literature, not that toxic kind of writing. He wants you to write good history. And if you write good history, he is very supportive. Mm. You know, what I, what I hear you saying uh, is that there's, there's a sense that the church needs uh, not, like you said, just good history, 
um, but a, a, an ability to reflect on itself from a little bit of the outside in. Uh, and I'd be curious, kind of what what do you feel uh, that what what place is ch- good church history going to fill for the regular rank and file, you know, Adventists that just go and they show up and they they read their quarterly and the, what what can historiography uh, in Adventism do for the for the regular people in your sense? Yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the history that's written from the outside in, you sort of write for the non-Adventist, right? You're, you're writing for the the field at large, but I think Seventh Day Adventists eavesdrop on that and are interested in it. Um, the stuff that's written from the inside out that will end up in the ABCs, you know, uh, that can also be very inspiring and interesting to people, but it's probably not going to get paid attention to by scholars in, in general so much. The, the, uh, the essay I did in church history a couple of years ago, and by the way, that was a raw numbers idea. Um, he went to them and said, you know, there's all these books being written in the Advents Pioneer mm-hmm. series, and you guys aren't reviewing them in, in church history. And and some of them, not all of them necessarily, but many of them, you uh, are valuable. You know, they're dealing with the primary sources. They they're arguing a thesis. You're learning a lot about the truth, and you need to know about these. And so they they said, well, who can we get to do it? And and he they he mentioned my name, and um, the guy who was editing the the uh, church history reviews at that time was John Butler, <laughs> ironically, you know, <laughs> he had come from Yale and he's out and he was out in he's retired in Minnesota, but he's, he's still writing. And so, and we knew each other and had corresponded and talked and so on. But anyway, it's kind of fun that he, <laughs> uh, so uh, I call him the real John Butler. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> First time we, we talked was he he had gotten a royalties check that belonged to me for the disappointed. They thought it was the real John Butler at Yale, you know, that had done the disappointed. And so he called me up and he said, I've got a I got a check for you, you know, royalties check. So we, <laughs> we got to talking uh on the phone a, a little bit then. That was a that was sort of the breakthrough. Um but uh, it's it's mostly a compliment to me, you know, if we're confused, way, way most. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, like people have come up to numbers and and thought that John Butler at Yale had written that introduction to Prophet as Filthy, historian as heretic. They, they thought that was him. And Butler did use it in Yale in his classes and he said that the the students really respond to that that introduction and um uh, the same thing happened um uh, the same thing happened in at duke you know they would pr- assign it and these kids coming out of religion backgrounds who are a little tormented at times that mm. introduction interested them as much as the book so I took that as uh, well. I took it as a compliment, but it had to do with the, you know, this um, this sort of story of conflict that that uh, Ron uh, represented. I mean, you know, he people don't recognize how Seventh Day Adventist he was, even when he was writing that book. You know, mm-hmm. they look back now at the number since, and it's, he seems, well, he's, he's pretty far removed, but he, he really was very, very much part of the church at that time. Um, but anyway, I, I, I've lost my way here. You were asking about, oh, the outside in thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think the pioneer series is a good place for a lot of people to start. I mean, you know, for a lot of, you look at uh, you look at Gil Valentine's book on Jane Andrews. I mean, you don't come out the same kind of Adventist after you've read that book as you were before, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I tell him it's too long. You know, he should have. We did need another <laughs> bookend, you know. But uh, 
but people read it. I mean, you get into it and they don't stop reading it. It's, it's, yeah. I had, I actually had a uh, person uh, over the last weekend who came up and was like, Hey, I'm reading Andrew's uh, book in that series. And I'm, I am really having to like step back and rethink some stuff. And that was, you know, just a, a church member who's like yeah. dipping their toes in this stuff. Um, I, I, I find it interesting. You mentioned that the students are, they, they were, it was hitting a nerve uh, thinking of the historian as heretic uh, introduction that you did there. Why? I, 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 there's lots of questions that this could bring up, you know, uh, intellectual honesty. Um, what is the role of the historian in a, in a denominational setting? Why do you think that it hit the students as hard as it did? Um, Cause like you said, some of them <laughs> were tortured souls coming out of their own, their own uh, faith groups. But um, yeah. what, why does that seem to hit, uh, especially the field of history, when we're talking about churches, do you think? Yeah, um, a lot of this stuff, I think, is is very nuanced. I mean, there are people that read, um, read uh, Prophetess of Health that didn't know this was a critical book mm-hmm. about Ellen White. They thought it was a very apologetic book about her. Uh, I mean, not probably not everyone thought that way, but there were reviewers that came to numbers and thought he had been too nice to her. Mm. And um, so they don't know what a struggle it may have been for the author of that book to write that book, you know, or what he went through. And they don't realize the blowback, you know, from the book. So I think the the introduction helped, uh, f- f- you know, the historian's heretic helped on that. I mean, I wrote that in, I think, in the n- early 90s um, for the second edition, you know, so, and numbers told me, he said, um, I had written a thing in Insight years ago on my dad. I called it dad. It was entered it in a short story contest. He was a non-Adventist. And then about my college years, he became an Adventist. He retired. He was older than my mother, retired and became an Adventist. And it was a very sort of affectionate story about him. Well, um, Numbers said uh, when he asked me to write the introduction and we we were up in Colorado, Colorado Springs, I think, and walking around for a few days. And he was um, talking to me about the whole story. And then he gave me documents and so on. He's very meticulous about keeping documents. And so he gave me documents that I could read. But he said, um, when you talk about my dad, um, treat him like he did your dad. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was that was touching to me um and i think it you know i mean people would say well this was a guy he was sort of grew up a, a fundamentalist his father was rather rigid and so and that's why he wrote the book well he he doesn't see the story that way his his father um he believes and his father worried about that. I mean, when the book came out, he said, is it because I raised you wrong, Ronnie? Mm. You know, was I too too harsh or too rigidly fundamentalist? And and Ron said, no, you were, you were a lot more open than many of the parents of my friends, you know, and, um, and I appreciate you for that. So... Ron came upon his own voice with that book and it, on his own, I think, a lot more than, you know, you can't blame it on your background. If we could blame it on a background, you would blame George Knight for his background. You would blame <laughs> anybody of that generation. Um, I mean, you know, Knight had no more rigid a background than numbers did. But they they went different ways. So you still you still are left to answer why that why they go different ways. But you can't blame it on the Bible teachers and and so mm. you know at least in my in my experience. Talk to us a little bit about the you know 
Millerite Conference, I think it was 1983, 1984 that you were a part of, and of course, Vern Carner and, and Ron, and talk about, you know, I'm kind of curious about some of the backstory behind that, that leads up to, of course, the, uh, the book Disappointed that, that you end up uh, being a part of. Well, I think there's a pattern to these these conferences: mm-hmm. the the rise of Edmonton, Loma Linda, and the disappointment, which was held in Killington, Vermont, and we toured Millerite sites when we were there. Um, and the conference um, on Ellen Harmon White that that came later in Portland, Maine. We were in Portland, and uh, and um, ended up at a restaurant that had been Ellen Harmon's Chestnut Street Church. You know, we're, we're sitting here, you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, but but Killington, all the, the pattern to them is that non-SDAs were invited mm-hmm. to these conferences and they ended up interacting with the SDAs. And uh, they were... When you read papers, uh, of course, the SCAs were reading the papers too. But um, when you read papers, you were reading it before this wider audience. And I think it affected how you approach things. Um, and and just mixing it up with these people. Um, and that is, um, I think that's important for the STAs. And I think that we're seeing more of that now. STAs are not just insulated right i mean now we're starting to uh like you you michael with your oxford project you you're dealing with people outside and um and the people outside are interested you know i mean the the sdas have been sort of kept to themselves and they don't know uh john butler told me on the church history i say well you know i I don't know enough about SDAs and it really helped me reading your essay. You know, I got, I got to know them more. And, um, you know, so that's, that's a good thing. It affects the work. It affects the work SDAs do. Um, I think the Ellen Harmon conference, there was sort of a, a women's union there too. There were the, some of them were non-SDAs and some of them were SDAs. But they had their own guild. So there were a bunch of these white males, and there were STAs and non-STAs, and then there were these women. And they had an impact on what – they were upset with the, uh, with the gender issue and how Ellen White – any condescension toward Ellen White was a real problem for them. And when I think – I know I may be getting ahead of myself, but the, the, the Ellen Harmon uh, White uh, conference – the the most critical people of Ellen White were the insiders. The outsiders were the more sympathetic to her and more empathic to her and said, boy, you're sitting on a story here. And why are you so tough on her? Tell us the good stuff and why people were attracted to her and why the church did so well and all of that. We want to hear that story. And so it was an interesting, you you learn some things from the outsider that you didn't expect. And you you sort of self-examined in a ways you, you didn't expect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience even just working uh, with some Pentecostal uh, colleagues. They are, I, I expected, you know, a little more derision when Ellen White comes up, but They've frankly always been kind of like, oh yeah, we, we we've heard about her. She was we we have prophets too. Those those are great. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, I can talk about this with a little less worry then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's funny because I'm uh you know I don't know if you guys have read Steve Daly's uh, book uh, Ellen White and uh, the the psychobiography of it. I've seen it. I haven't I haven't picked it up yet. Yeah, and I'm I'm reviewing it for Spectrum, so I've I've got it on my mind at the moment, but. Steve Daly, who no longer considers himself a Seventh-day Adventist, but he, he, he kind of went out through the vineyard movement and is very open to Pentecostalism. And he's had a, a, a little church in which there are two women prophets in the church, right? Two women. Uh, I know both of them and I've met them one I went to college. But, but um, 
And yet, while he's very favorable to to sort of Pentecostal phenomena, he's very hard on Ellen White, right? <laughs> so it's yeah. sort of this uh, the, this uh, contradiction that's that's interesting to me, and I'm not sure what's all at play there. Um, but uh, yeah, I I hear what you're saying about uh, the the uh, one of the prophets was a wife of uh, a colleague of mine when when I taught high school. And they were looking for a church. Uh, they, they She's from a four-square gospel background. Mm-hmm. Very conservative. And uh, very conservative. He listened to Rush Limbaugh every day. You know, I mean, he was... <laughs> but I, I, I liked him uh, very much. But he said, where can we go to church? And I said, well, I know this guy, Steve Daly, has got a church, and he's got a prophet already in the church. So you could take your wife over there. She'd be a second prophet. She traveled with her brother, who was an evangelist, and she offered the what she called the word of wisdom after the service. And, and it was very, very much a sort of, um, there was that element to it where she was seeing into their lives, right? Um but um, I met her and talked to her, and uh, she was a most gracious, most refined person. And uh, she knew I was writing about Ellen White. In fact, I was writing about, I was writing the chapter that ended up in an Ellen Harmon White book. And she said, um, you know, you have too few prophets in that church. You need more of them. Because... Everything comes through the filter of this one person and any problems she might have or hang ups or the religion is defined by her. And um, we were at a Christmas party once and her her husband told me, uh, he said, uh, well, my wife's got a word of wisdom for you. She's she's got a message. And I said, oh, my God, you know. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so on our way to the car afterwards, uh, after the party, she was chatting with me and um, she said, well, I think you're in the wrong, you're doing the wrong thing here. I was teaching actually at an alternative high school then with kids that had dropped out of school and they were on drugs and, and their parents were crazy and incarcerated and all of that. But she said, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. This is not fulfilling your potential. You need to be a Pentecostal minister. This is my word that I have for you. <laughs> so I I chuckled because I thought of it as as uh, a compliment, you know, coming from her. Mm. But what? But did you speak in tongues? That's the, that's the real thing we want to know. <laughs> yeah, he did. Her husband did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He'd sit in the lunchroom. I said, "What is it?" What is this business with tongues, Tom? I mean, I don't get it. You want me to do it? I said, well, go ahead. And he just started blathering. (laughs) This sounded to me like Tourette syndrome or something. But but the thing I went away from that experience with, I was quite moved by it. It was, she was very affirming to me and complimentary to, there was no edge to it of of criticism, you know. Mm or your life is screwed up and you need to do this. It was, and, and I know for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, especially of my age, Ellen White, there's like baggage with Ellen White. I mean, they, they find her to be a difficult person to deal with. And I think she was a difficult person to deal with in many ways. Um, And I think this was Elaine's, this, this prophet's point. You need different personalities bringing the message to you, not just the same, uh, the same person. And um, so she was sort of a living example of the point, mm-hmm. point she was making. Democratization of prophecy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I'm, I think from many Seventh-day Adventists, they don't think we have too few prophets. They think we have too many. I mean, one was more than <laughs> enough. Uh, but I, I see the point that, that maybe if you have more of them, more in a church and people are offering their, their word to you and there's other people who can 
sort of cross-examine it. Well, maybe that isn't the right thing, but maybe this is better. I mean, a little more in the Corinthians model, mm-hmm. rather than the Old Testament uh, sort of shake you shake your bones model of prophecy. <laughs> Yeah, you know that's 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 interesting. I've had I've had some interesting talks with my my own Pentecostal friends around those lines, and they they used to um, they used to tell me like you know the way you read Ellen White you know is similar uh, in some ways, but at the same time uh, we we kind of feel like you you you've maintained your fundamentalism here uh, in in regards to prophecy. And they said we've we've had so many of them for so long that you know it it, it gives us an opportunity to hear God's voice all over. And I was like. That's an interesting, an interesting open door because we would look yeah. at that with an air of suspicion, and they're looking at our single as their own air suspicion. So, yeah. yeah. But there's a good example of learning from mm-hmm. an outsider, right? I mean, right. begin thinking about things yeah. differently, um, and they can really contribute. Uh, I want to hear a yeah. little bit more and back up just, uh, you know, from the Millerite Conference. Um, you kind of took a break for a while from Adventist history, I guess, and. Uh, you know, I, I know you've mentioned that kind of the Portland conference in 2009 kind of re-whetted your appetite. Um, talk to us about your personal journey. I mean, you've seen some of the, the trauma of uh, the journey along the way, as we've talked about with the historian as heretic. I mean, you were a witness firsthand to some of the traumatic aspects of that. Was that part of why you, why you took a break? I'm, I'm kind of probing a little bit, but would like, you know, a little self-reflection on, on your own journey as to you know where you're at that process yeah i guess there's there's probably a personal level to it and a professional level but i left la sierra in 85 i guess it was formally 80s we we came to a a parting of the ways um and it was it had to do with my own um it had to do with intellectual differences, but it also had to do with mm-hmm. lifestyle. And um, the, we, they insisted that it was amicable. In other words, they didn't want any, it to be construed as uh, any sort of blaming going on, but there was blame in it. Um, and they paid me a bunch of money to leave. <laughs> um I did think that my life really changed. Um, I mean, I was treated well at La Sierra, but my life changed when I wrote an essay in Spectrum on the world of E.G. White and the end of the world, uh, in which I put her eschatology in a 19th century context. And that was kind of my my bombshell. You know, uh, I don't know that it was a nuclear bomb. Maybe it was just... TNT, you know, but that was the one that, and after that, the invitations to speak and the invitations to write and everything changed. And La Sierra became nervous about me. And then I got an NEH grant uh, to write a biography of Ellen White. And it arrived in 84. And that I think was a real concern because they said, oh, no, we've got another raw numbers on our hands here, another book on Ellen White, and and he's got money to do it. I mean, you know, I can leave school for a sabbatical and do this. And, um, and about that time, these personal issues came up. So it was... Um, you know, it was a convenient time to to move me out of the school. And um, I really, I left, um, I left the church certainly personally and, and professionally. I mean, I was, I didn't, I didn't uh, want to, I didn't sort of want to continue as an American religion historian from the sidelines. I either was going to be in it or not. And, and um, I looked around for jobs, but I wanted to remain in Southern California because my, my wife had a good job and she was just getting started in her career. And I said, not fair to take her. I was offered things and 
you know, I could have gone puddle hopping up in Montana or in central Michigan, but I just didn't think it was fair to her and, and uprooting the kids. So I stayed in Southern California. And like I say, I, I probably should have stayed in more than I did, wrote written reviews or, you know, sort of done high school teaching and stayed in the career, but I didn't. And um, it wasn't until, I mean, I was gone for close to 30 years. I mean, all, all this writing you're talking about or the stuff I did was mostly in a decade. Uh, I was 40 when I left last year, and that was pretty much leaving that whole uh, career. But then, I mean, there were, in a, you know, in the 90s, I did the Historian's Heretic, so I wasn't totally gone. But um, but then when the uh, Ellen Harmon White project came up, and Numbers was involved in that, and uh, Julius Nam and Terry Amott and Gary Land and all these people, and they said, well, let's get Butler out of mothballs, and he could <laughs> uh, the the introduction or the uh, the uh, kind of the overview. And um, I didn't know that I could still do it. I mean, I was, I hadn't been thinking about Ellen White for a quarter of a century. Um, and um, I didn't know if I had any ideas about her, you know, or I remembered when I was sort of obsessing on her as a historian, thinking about her and reading books that helped me understand her and so on. But now I hadn't been doing that. I just had not been doing anything. And then, so then they said, you know, can you do this? And so I said, well, I'll, let me see. And so I started sort of messing with it. And things just came flooding back and I got very interested. Um, and when I was in my 30s, I, or like late 30s, I was thinking about writing this biography of Ellen White. Well, then I forgot all about it. And then now I was in my 60s, you know, and they said, okay, maybe I need to be writing this again. And I don't even know, I can't even tell you the difference between what I was like in my 30s thinking about her and what I'm like now thinking about her. I think there is a difference. I think had I written the book then, it would have been a different book than the book I'm writing now. Mm. Um, and maybe even though I've probably lost a few steps and I spent all this time away from scholarship, in some ways, maybe it'll be a better book now. I, you know, I don't know. But I, but I do have, I'll tell you this, I was probably more critical of her in my 30s and more empathic toward her now. Um, and I think gender and, and my empathy for her as a woman uh, is, is much stronger than it would have been then. Um, so um, I'm kind of glad in a way that things went the way they did and that I didn't write that book and that I'm writing this book. Uh, Although I could be dead before it's done. Well, let's let's know. be optimistic here. I what, what, <laughs> tell tell us though. You know, are you thinking of publishing outside the church or part of the Adventist biography series? I mean, you've done a lot of work at the beginning of this interview. We're talking about as part of been your your story is is trying to give that larger context. What what can we expect from a Jonathan Butler two point uh, biography of of Ellen White? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, uh, yeah, my plan is always to to uh, to write it outside the church. And most of the stuff mm -hmm. I have written has been intentionally right. for the non-SDA, even though I, I, I understand that SDAs can track you down and, and read it and, and, and maybe enjoy it uh, and appreciate it. But, but I'm... I've written inside the church a lot, but not as much history right. inside the church. I wrote a lot of a lot of devotional articles or stories or things like that. But when I'm writing history, to me, that's an art form that that is different. It's like it's like classical music for mm -hmm. me when I'm writing history, and that's for the the sort of cultivated audience. 
when I'm playing gospel music at the piano, that's for the SDAs, you know. So, you know, when I'm writing for, when I wrote for Insight or something like that, uh, that was for the SDAs. When I'm, that's the gospel music. When I'm writing for Outside, it's the it's the classical stuff. And But I want to write in a way that ordinary mm-hmm. people can enjoy it. I, I don't like this sort of monographic, uh, uh, you know, Right. academies writing i think it ought to be writing that anybody can read and good writing can be cross the cross the boundary mm-hmm. you know so between between academic and non-academic so, so yeah i i would expect it to i think it will have uh, i think it will have a, a, gender is very much a, a preoccupation of it Ellen White is a woman, and in a sense, a triumphant, a triumphant figure, a woman who is, yeah, has her flaws and is mired in many of the prejudices and problems of the 19th century, but ultimately is a triumphant, successful person uh, who who provides a model for people uh not uh, a foil to be sort of uh criticized that's that's an interesting way of looking at it i i really liked what you said before about how the book you might have written on her earlier is would be different uh what where would you like to see adventist historians kind of move in the future with with kind of this in mind you know what's the what's the best places for us to start setting new targets um, are, are we are we just revisionist? Are we looking at an audience outside of the church uh, primarily? How do you what what topics or trends even do you think would be significant for future historians to tackle? I think of C.S. Lewis saying, uh, you know, that we need uh, we don't need more Christian books. We need more Christians writing about other subjects. You know that kind of thing. Uh, what was it? Was it George Target that said mm-hmm. we don't need an Adventist football team? We need Adventists playing for other teams. You know. Um, so I would like to see probably the future of historiography, and I think we're at we're at the future. I mean, it's it's starting to happen where SDAs are not talking to each other. Um. They're talking to the outside. And we went through this period, like I talk about in the essay, uh, of this revisionism where we were sort of iconoclasts and taking on the tradition and saying there's all these problems with the tradition and all these problems with our understanding of Ellen White. Now we're into this apologetic period, which the Adventist Pioneer Series, I think, is a great example of, where we're... uh, we're saying constructive thing. We're we're remembering the criticism, the iconoclasm, but we're integrating it into a, a, a more constructive way of understanding history, which I think lay SDAs can appreciate, and I would think global SDAs, you know, could could appreciate. But I do think there's another phase now that's that's out there and it's starting to happen where. Um, SDAs and non-SDAs are writing about the church uh, and writing about Ellen White and um, can can say some surprising things, some fresh things. So, you know, when you get a non-SDA coming in and dipping his or her foot in the water, I mean, it's an interesting, you learn stuff that way. And that's that's what I would like to see more of. And and of course, they'll be drawing on as they come in from the outside, they'll be drawing on what's gone on in the community for the last 40, 50 years. Well, this is feeling like a good stopping point. Well, thank you, both of you. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I look forward to I look forward to the whole series. I think it'll be fun to it'll be fun to. Uh, to hear and and uh it's great you guys are doing this 
And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.